0: I'm Arthur Snell and this is Doomsday Watch.
1: Hello and welcome to a special edition of Doomsday Watch. My name's Andrew Harrison. and the group editor of Podmasters, the shadowy organisation behind this podcast and others like The Bunker and Oh God, What Now? We've been absolutely delighted and awed by Doomsday Watch and the incredible work that Arthur and Robin have done. So now, at the end of Series 3, we thought we'd turn the tables and talk to Arthur about making the series, about the terrifying developments since Putin invaded Ukraine and, of course, what the future might hold for global stability when and if the Ukraine war ends. And we've got some questions from listeners too. Arthur, hello and welcome to the other side of the table. Hello, Andrew. How does it feel? Slightly nervous, but I think we'll be able to pull through. We have ways of making you talk. Um, (laughs) So we've now done two full documentary series, one before Ukraine and one after with the war bulletins in between. Ukraine is just looming over absolutely everything. If I told you in November 2021, when we started, that by January 2023, there'd be a war in Europe and an attempted coup in Brazil, as well as the US, what would you have thought? Well, I don't want to say I would have
0: said, yeah, I knew that. But <laughs> none of those things are way out of the realms of possibility. Trump, in the run-up to the election in, you know, in 2020, was making it clear that, he wouldn't abide by the result if he didn't get the results he wanted. And I remember listening to a fascinating podcast, um, Deep State Radio, where they were talking about how they'd war-gamed what would happen, and they couldn't get past the the point of a sort of constitutional crisis. So in a way, there, there were plenty of serious people who, who saw that coming. Similarly with Bolsonaro, in a way, what's interesting there is the fact that he got to the election. He lost the election. He admitted he'd lost the election. He didn't concede, but he didn't stand in the way. But clearly there was this sort of ongoing uh, sort of parallel track with his uh, associates who then tried this sort of insurrection coup, whatever you want to call it, just the other day. Uh, whether or not he was directly involved with that, I think remains to be seen. Um And the war in Ukraine, it was... It didn't look like the most likely outcome, but it was always a possibility. Putin was threatening it. He was building up his troops. So I think I think the fact that all these things have come together shows just what a strange period of history we're living through. But, but they're neither, none of them are individually unpredictable events. Do you think that Putin could have sustained the grip he has on Russia without a war? Yes. Um, I think... He could very easily have done that. He he could have done various little escalations without trying to take Kiev. He could have expanded the war in the Donbass. He could have um, perhaps done some sort of provocations around the edges of Crimea. And I think he would now probably be feeling a lot safer. He's gone all in. He really has to win this war,
1: um, although he probably won't. Well, let me rephrase that then could putin have sustained his grip on russia without some kind of aggressive external direction without without conflict of some kind i understand what you mean when you say he didn't necessarily have to launch this mm. terribly ill-equipped badly planned uh, appalling um, misjudgment but it seems to be that a posture of permanent aggression is what keeps him in place and if that goes what's keeping him there
0: yeah I, so he has to yes he has to persuade the russian people that they are threatened by some external actor, and there's this weird kind of shibboleth of Ukraine, NATO, Nazis. You know, it it it, mm. it doesn't stand up to any analysis, but that's this sort of inchoate fear. Uh, so you're right, I think, that he, he had to continue to provoke some kind of external uh, conflict. But then he had so many—he's got a sort of huge menu of options. You know, he could have done something— in Moldova, or some something in in a smaller country, in a place with much less riding on it, a place that NATO would care about a lot less, um, he chose to invade the the only country that's nearly as big as Russia in Europe, um, and um, and you know well we all know how that worked out for him. So I think it's a it's a sign of uh, how his his own decision-making and, and the advice he's getting is incredibly poor, including the advice he was getting that Ukrainian state would sort of collapse, you know, within within hours, and they
1: would just sort of stroll into Kiev. I mean, we're sort of very nearly coming to the first anniversary of, of the invasion. And still, you know, even if you followed it fairly closely, it's very difficult to see what Putin thought he was going to get out of this in short order, apart from the you know the the victory as a symbol but what 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 does he actually want from ukraine yeah well that's a really good question i
0: think one of the things to to keep in mind is that the understanding that i have including you know speaking now and then to sort of you know officials uh, in a kind of quiet way is that that their assessment is that he still thinks he can win But he thinks he thinks winning is having having failed to win with the blitzkrieg, which is obviously plan A. Plan B is that the decadent West will eventually fold because we don't like paying too much to heat our homes. We don't like uh, the inconvenience that goes with being at war. Um, And. And interestingly, you know, partly because this has been a very mild winter, it doesn't feel very mild today in, in the UK, but, you know, it has been if you look at the weather patterns. Uh, they're already in Russia talking about the next winter. They're already right. they're already thinking, well, fine, we'll just roll on another 12 months. Now, that presupposes that he can continue to feed conscripts into the meat grinder, and we, we, you know, which obviously is a tragedy of its own, uh, on its own merits. Um, but, Russia has this history of dealing with very heavy casualties in war. You know, it lost 20 million in World War II, whereas, you know, most of the other uh, sort of Allied powers had a fraction of those numbers. So I think the way that Russia looks at warfare is very different. but to, to come back to your question, you know what does he get at the end of it? I don't think he wants Ukraine to cease to exist as a formal independent country, but I think he wants something like Belarus where it's on paper it's a separate country, but it does exactly what he wants at any
1: given time. So what you've described as the potential victory sounds less militarily defined and more defined in terms of the Russian national story. What do we do? We suffer and we die in large numbers. We grind it out and prevail the way the weak West can't. Yes. You know, we ground it out over the Germans in 1944 and 1945. Yeah. It's we, we retold our story and wrote it large. I think that's a really good way
0: of looking at it that it, it's, it, it is almost a sort of cultural narrative rather than a war plan. And maybe that's why the war is going so badly because actually, even now, even with all that they should have learned from the last, you know, 11 months, they're not really improving their way of fighting the war. They're just getting people literally using poorly trained conscripts to charge towards machine guns, which, you know, most countries, including countries that are, that are not, not in NATO, that countries that are fairly... Um, uh, you know, f- fairly poor in material terms, wouldn't dream of being so wasteful with their military.
1: But but that's the way Russia is fighting this war. So I was digging back into the past to you know look across the you know the mystifying period of Putin's rule, and the one time that I could find where he actually looked weak was the Kursk disaster when the submarine Kursk sinks in the Barents Sea. One hundred eighteen sailors die. Putin really mishandles the media. Says he feels responsible for the accident, but denies that there were delays in the rescue efforts. And like within a year, he's big on taking over and silencing television channels and cracking down on independent media. Was that the teachable moment for him? Never ever look weak. I think that was certainly one of them. There were there were probably a couple. I think he
0: definitely got a real fright. Um, with the original, the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, I think there were, there were certain moments. So obviously, Putin comes to power, it, easy for historians, 1st of January 2000. Um, and the first couple of years, he was probably still in a kind of tussle with those that had put him there. And, and he was basically put there by the people around Yeltsin. Yeltsin himself was by the end of his time in the presidency, basically a drunkard, you know, barely in control. But there were people around him who were ruling the roost. And as a key figure, Boris Berezovsky, who was probably the sort of the first among equals of of all those oligarchs. uh, Berezovsky, incidentally, ended up in the UK where he died in mysterious circumstances, Um, not the only one to have done that. So uh, but certainly the Kursk disaster came at a time when Putin had not established his credentials when it was a symbol of the weakness of the Russian military. And of course, for Putin, seeming strong is so important. Now, what's interesting, you could argue that the performance of the Russian military in the Ukraine war has been lamentable. And again, is a bit like the Kursk in the sense of what's supposed to be this terrifying, impressive force proves itself to be barely, um, barely competent. But I think the difference is now that he's crushed dissent so that there aren't people coming up on TV saying, what the hell is going on? You know, wh- why are we so badly led? Whereas back at that time, after the Kursk that was also the, that, that, that is what happened. People were openly criticizing. I mean, I think the other incident that that's worth remembering is, is the apartment bombings in 1999. So just as Putin was, was prime minister, not yet president, um, there were a series of bombings in apartment buildings across Russia, Moscow, one or two other cities. Um, at this point now, it looks very likely that that was a false flag, an inside job by the FSB. Um, and at the time, a lot of Russians believed that. But if you ask Russians now, they'll say, no, this was Chechen terrorists. And those are the people who were blamed for the incident. And it, was, it allowed Putin to launch the first of his many kind of military campaigns with the second Chechen war.
1: So something I stumbled upon as I was uh, sort of checking out how is Russia's war going, as we do, uh, I found the very first Russia has already lost this war piece. And it was uh, Yuval Noah Harari, the guy who wrote Sapiens on the first of March twenty twenty two, one week after the war. So he was getting in very early. Did anybody else go earlier than that? Uh, well, I think if you
0: look at the Twitter feed of Louise Mensch, who's, you know, uh, controversial but yes. but certainly um engaging i think she might have been there you know a, a couple of days earlier but yeah that that is probably um as early as it gets
1: so the so the question is has he actually lost that we just you just described what putin mm. would think of as winning has he really lost it in kind of objective military military terms he certainly seems not to have won it yeah
0: i mean i think it remains a choice and a lot of the agency in this choice is in sitting in western governments and this is why it is such a big deal. It is, you know, Western countries have to decide if they want U- Ukraine to win or not. And we have to decide how we want them to win and we have to decide uh, what we're willing to do to let them win. And it's not just about, well, I've got a warehouse full of, you know, old missiles here, have these. You know, we we as, whether it's Britain, France, Germany, Netherlands, whoever, we have to get our own industry working so that we're manufacturing the weapons, the munitions, the other uh, kit that the Ukrainians need, because no Western country has uh, adequately prepared itself for this kind of conflict. And just because our soldiers aren't in the field, it almost doesn't matter, actually, because uh, if we leave the Ukrainians to their own devices, Russia will absolutely be able to win. So if we don't want Russia to win, we have
1: to keep supplying the Ukrainians, and therefore we need a different type of economy. Can you expand on that? We need a different kind of economy. Are we going to be melting the railings in the parks again like we did in the Second World well, War?
0: Well, as everyone knows, those railings I think never got made into anything
1: useful. But uh, yeah,
0: we, yeah, we need more of a war economy. And President Macron has talked about this. I don't think he's, he's done that much, but at least he's identified the issue. You know, we've lived in this state of happy complacency that NATO exists. NATO on paper is the thing that stops Russia invading Western Europe. But no one really thought Russia was going to invade Western Europe. You know, we, we never really had to sort of take it that seriously. And of course, in some countries, they, they barely took it seriously at all. You know, the, the state of some countries' militaries in the NATO alliance has been, has been you know, barely functional. What What we have to do is to have the kind of economy where you are supplying munitions on the understanding that every month you get through thousands of them. Again, it may not be our soldiers pressing the firing button, but that is still what's happening. So we need a much higher intensity of production in the context of a cost of living crisis, of an energy crisis. You know, there are all kinds of equations. uh, And that's why that's what gives Putin a measure of confidence is probably the, the wrong word, but it's certainly a measure of hope because he looks at Western Europe. He looks at our our energy situation, the cost of living crisis, the political turmoil is not unique to this country, and he thinks,
1: well, my people will put up with a lot more than those people will. I mean, the, just as a listener to Doomsday Watch, what I find incredible is the the wealth of and depth of information that you can bring in that sort of fleshes out the, the things that that are going on around the world and makes you understand that a, a you know a level of depth that can't be replicated elsewhere. I wanted to ask you you know, from making the podcast, what have you learned? Are there other things that have come through that have surprised you?
0: Yeah, a lot. I mean, one of the things that I suppose everybody learned was the resilience and the sort of uh, heroism of the Ukrainians. Because we, we, you know, we've we, talked a lot in the last few minutes about what Western countries need to do. But of course, none of this would mean anything if the Ukrainians weren't doing what they're doing. But I think I've, I've also learned, you know, there've been plenty of episodes on subjects where I had a vague sort of level of interest and knowledge, but certainly not an in-depth knowledge until we made the program. So for example, the the, the, the episode on sort of AI and, and and doomsday weapons, drones, and so on, it really is quite sort of sobering to think that there are now these autonomous weapons that may make decisions about whether or not to strike a certain target. And again, I'm less worried about what those weapons might do in the hand of the countries that we live in, in liberal democracies. But that that technology will very quickly reach illiberal uh, autocracies, of which there's a distressing number these days. So, so that was a real eye opener for me. The other one, I think, was this the the one on the sort of polar regions, the way that the the thought of a world where the Arctic is no longer a lump of ice but oh. a stretch of sea, and how that just changes. The whole map of the world it's fascinating really because that's something in my own lifetime which i'm you know i still like to think i'm just about a young person um that's happened you know i in in the 1970s when i was born there was a ginormous piece of ice at the north pole and i won't be that old when there's no ice at all
1: yeah and the way that that's not just a, a catastrophe for ecosystems and a catastrophe for biodiversity but shifts the balance yeah. and, and actually produces a new arena yes. for struggles for control, yeah. different kinds of weaponry, different economic power, exactly. different yeah. trades. Yeah, dip- so dip- so that's the weapons. thing
0: that that it's you know we we often look at these things from an e- ecological perspective, which is understandable. And of course, I I you know as much as anyone else, sort of find it hard to sort of grapple with that. But as you say, the. the the geopolitical implications of countries looking to take advantage, you know, a country like China deciding that it is now a polar superpower. You know, you look at the map, China's nowhere near the poles but they see opportunity and as does Russia and, and the US as well.
1: In a good link to a different episode of this season of Doomsday Watch, uh, the death of American democracy edition, we have a question from Patreon backer Colin Baines, who says, Will the Russian war in Ukraine help the U.S. electorate to recognize its critical role in defending and promoting democratic elections? The counterfactual reality where a second Trump term denied Ukraine aid and disseminated Russian propaganda at the highest levels of government would have been a much darker year for democracy than 2022 turned out to be as horrific as it has been and um, you know what would it mean not just for for Ukraine but also for you know other threatened democracies around the world if Trump were to stand again and win
0: well i think you you can assume that that's one of the factors that is on the sort of dashboard of indicators that putin's thinking about so had trump won uh, last time around against against joe biden I am sure that, you know, the Russians would be in Kiev now uh, because not not just because of the, the actual decision about whether or not to supply the, the government there, but actually just the moral force of knowing that you don't have America on your side. It just completely changes the calculation and it would change the calculation for other European countries as well. So the fact that Russia has done what it's done under a president, Joseph Biden, who not only... Is a Democrat, but he's someone who, because of his age, actually, he sort of understands the Cold War. He understands the significance of the Atlantic Alliance. We're bloody lucky, frankly, Mm. that it worked out that way. And I think it's easy to be a bit despondent about the American electorate, but we have to give them credit because actually, as we all know, in the midterms, uh, you know that the incumbent party did better than any party since was was it I any mean, sometime before World War two anyway yeah. you know so a a ridiculously long historical period. of course, a lot of that will be down to domestic factors, but I am sure that there were millions of American voters who had in mind this point that the world is a very serious place, mm. and you don 't actually need a joker who doesn 't understand the the value of international relations who doesn 't get why it makes sense for America to offer guarantees of security, whether it's to South Korea or Ukraine or any other country. Um, so I think, you know, we shouldn't underestimate the American electorate. The the really sort of wacko candidates on the whole didn't get reelected. And in general, the isolationist and sort of anti-patriotic fascist tendency in America had a bad run in the elections.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is it is in a way encouraging that even though, you know, the, the main determinant is supposed to be gas prices and gas right. prices are high. And a a large proportion of the American electorate were prepared to take that on the chin because they really did not want to have an apologist, America first uh, crook. Yeah. In, in in this fight. That is, I suppose, a small reason to be cheerful. Um, we have just seen the January the 6th inquiry race towards its ending to get in ahead of the new Republican House, which would certainly, you know, has no truck with this investigation at all. Uh, it's pinned the blame for the insurrection on January the 6th squarely on Trump. There may yet be charges against Trump. Um, from working on the podcast, do you think, does it does it almost matter anymore whether Trump is charged or not? Because... His personal influence seems to be fading, but the MAGA infection seems to have taken deep root. Whether Trump goes to jail or not might not change that. I think that's a good point. I think that
0: uh, clearly Trump still matters, um, but he doesn't matter as much as he wishes he did. did you know, mm-hmm. people talk a lot about Ron DeSantis, but it's not just him. There's a, there's a group now, you know, after this whole pantomime of McCarthy becoming uh, the new speaker and, and needing to go through 15 rounds of election, uh, there's a group, a tiny group, maybe about 20 of the sort of hard right who sit there in, in the House, um, who now control him. And those people, whether or not Donald Trump exists, it seems to me they're the ones in a position to continue the sort of the, the, the crazy house policies. Um, Kevin McCarthy made it very clear that he he doesn't want to support uh, Ukraine. You know, there is already this kind of, again, sort of anti-patriot, as it seems to an outsider, sort of desire to attack American institutions, which again is it's very confusing for someone who's been observing the Republican Party, you know, for, for most of my adult life. But you, you've got this stage now where the the sort of the extreme right wing populism that Trump, Trump was the most brilliant exponent of it. But I, it certainly um, if, if Trump keeled over tomorrow morning,
1: wouldn't that be a shame? Uh, I, I don't think it would die with him. Mm. Um, Doomsday Watch was the first place I heard the notion that the Republicans no longer believe in democracy. Um, it's three months after that episode came out. I think the humiliation of Trump is now well underway. Do you think that's true? That the Republican, at, the Republican Party as a whole, no longer believes in democracy, or is it? Is it those twenty Bobert, Jim Jordan types who are just the core of it?
0: Let's see what they do. I mean, what what has been very depressing, and it's not unique to Republicans, but about so-called mainstream conservatives across. Uh, liberal democracies, but particularly in the US and the UK, is that you you have the wackos, the far out, but a lot of the mainstream conservatives really lose their backbones very quickly. And if you you look in the US system, well, a very tiny number of Republicans were willing to stand up for what is clearly right. For example, Liz Cheney. Well, I mean, it's ended her career. So it's career ending for most of them, but standing up against the insurrection and what goes with that, which is an anti-democratic uh, maneuver. In this country, we, you know, we, we had the prorogation. I mean, it's amazing how quickly we forget about that thing. But that was our own type of judicial coup. It was a completely anti-democratic and illegal maneuver. And the vast majority of conservative politicians did nothing about it. A very small number, as we know, stood up against it. And, and again, it's been career ending for them. So it seems to me that if you look at what Kevin McCarthy is going to try to do, he's going to try to make it impossible for the elected president and his administration to do any administering and given that Joe Biden has not just a electoral college majority but a very clear majority of votes you know in the American electorate that is as far as i'm concerned completely anti-democratic
1: obviously we didn't just do ukraine and america with this 10 part series you also looked at lots of other lurking dangers around the world including the rivalry between saudi arabia and iran uh, patron back James Pearson wants to know about this. He said, I read in the FT that Tehran has accused Saudi Arabia and other foreign powers of stoking the protests in Iran. Firstly, is it true? And secondly, would a regime change in Tehran end the Cold War between these two countries, which, as you say, has generated so much trouble in the region over decades? This
0: is such a good question.
1: I think in terms of Tehran's accusations, of course, one shouldn't give them any credit
0: uh, and they're perfectly capable of lying uh, in public. But... Uh, Saudi Arabia before MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, was very cautious and usually uh, waited for others to take the lead in kind of foreign policy initiatives. Saudi Arabia under Mohammed bin Salman is very different. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if elements of the Saudi state, particularly uh, institutions and agencies that work directly to MBS, have made efforts to try to destabilize the regime in Tehran. And you can see why they would see that as being in their interest. Now, to take the second part of the question were the sort of Mullah's regime to collapse in Tehran, uh, would it be better for the overall relationship? Well, of course, it, it's the classic case of be careful what you wish for. You know, what replaces it? Let's not forget that the US, uh, as we all know, invaded Iraq with, with the assistance of Britain and others. Uh, in order to bring in a sort of pro-Western democratic country. And they ended up with a sort of pro-Iranian, um, is, Islamic-oriented uh, uh, kind of Shia theocracy. Um, now, Iraq, as it happens right now, is is looking sort of better than it has done for a few years. So and, and no thanks to the Americans, of course. Um, so, so, you know, these things aren't set in stone. But I think if there were to be a collapse of the sort of Ayatollah's system in Iran, Uh, You can't assume that what replaces it would be better from the perspective of Saudi Arabia or from the perspective of us in the West. And that's not me subtly saying I want them to stay in power. I think that's just, you know, you can't can't really
1: assume uh, things get easier. I dug out that same FT piece that James mentioned, and uh, it it, uh, says that Washington and Riyadh both suspect Iran are preparing to attack Saudi. Mm. Uh, I can't imagine a worse time for that to happen. is, Is this likely? Is this possible? Well, I mean, of course,
0: they've, they've done it before, uh, usually via proxies. So the, the, the Houthis in Yemen, who, you know, 20 years ago when I was in Yemen, were not uh, fronts for the Iranians, but they they certainly have become so now, or certain elements of them have become so. Uh, there have been various attacks on Saudi Arabia carried out by the Houthis. And then there was the, the attack on a Saudi oil facility at um, Abqaik, which if you look at the uh, the nature of the target, although the Houthis claimed it, I think the consensus view it was actually carried out by the, by the Iranians, and the Houthis claimed it to sort of so, so to put a bit of distance. So, in that sense. They've done it before. They might do it again. Of course, would they do a brazen attack? Would they do something where, you know, it's Iran a sort of, you know, the, uh, like Russia attacking Ukraine? I'd, I'd be very surprised. But of course, think back to the Falklands War when a, when a desperate dictatorial regime facing economic collapse gives its last throw of the dice. And,
1: and perhaps that, that could be a scenario. So one final question from patron-backer Themi McLeod. I hope i pronounced that correctly. Given the current geopolitical climate and the feeling of continuous escalation of tensions over the last six years or so, coupled with a shift towards more autocratic regimes, is a global, potentially nuclear conflict now inevitable? And what would need to happen to diffuse the situation and return us to more stable state of affairs? It's the 64 million megaton question, it, Arthur. It certainly is. Well, um, so I'm, I'm going to
0: slightly dodge it by saying I'm actually planning to have a conversation with uh, Mike Martin who of course regular listeners will be familiar with a kind of military expert counterinsurgency expert academic Mike is of the view that a, a a major global conflict is extremely likely between nuclear armed powers and of course then it could it could escalate um I think it is still possible that we avoid it and the reason I say that I'm I'm not as regular listeners might be aware I'm not often accused of optimism but I think what the war in Ukraine has shown us is that you can have a lot of a very sort of kinetic war fighting going on and all of the time, countries are still avoiding escalation into what might be called doomsday scenarios. Uh, Even, you know, those who may have already listened to our last episode about the kind of uh, covert action program that appears to be unfolding on Russian territory, uh, there's no indication that Russia wants to uh, respond by some kind of WMD uh, strike, um, whether it's in Ukraine or or further afield. And of course, you know, you don't have to be an expert in nuclear strategy to think through the implications. Putin knows that if he does that, then the next thing that happens to him uh, is worse and worse. And and, and of course, it, it, it almost certainly ends with his death and, and the destruction of Russia as we know it. So um, putting that onto the global scale, I think Uh, I mean, the the big points of tension are, of course, the USA, China, Russia, those are the main ones. And then, of course, Saudi Arabia, Iran, as perhaps a kind of secondary order one. Interestingly, the prospect of a major conflict between India and Pakistan now looks a lot less likely, whereas uh, not that long ago, that was the next nuclear war about to happen. So it seems to me that that there are a series of these different potential flashpoints. It would be very foolish to say that none of them could sort of um, catch fire. And I haven't mentioned North Korea, which is arguably the, the joker in the pack, because that's where you have such a tiny, uh, you know, you can't even call it a ruling class. It's a ruling family and, and basically one individual. So I, I think we're allowed to be scared of North Korea. But I don't think North Korea could create a sort of global conflict. So I think in in a really kind of uh, cautious way, I I do have a measure of optimism.
1: Well, we have plans to cover many of these things you just mentioned in future editions of The Bunker as well as Doomsday Watch. There's stuff up in the air. Um, Arthur, thanks for talking to me. and Thanks for everything you and Robin have done on Doomsday Watch. I feel like an amazed and thrilled bystander in this. It's such a great series. Andrew, thanks so much. And uh, listeners, thank you all for your support and keep listening. Listeners, thank you for backing us on Patreon as well. There will be more specials and surprise episodes before the next series, which we're working on right now. So keep an eye on your inbox before it's too late.